Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 153rd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is bad tech habits your firm needs to break. Our guest today is Mark Bassingthwaite, Esquire, who, since 1998, has been a risk manager with ALPS, the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance. In his tenure with the company, Mark has conducted over 1,200 law firm risk management assessment visits, presented over 600 continuing legal education seminars throughout the United States, and written extensively on risk management, ethics, and technology. It's great to have you with us today, Mark. Thank you very much, John, Sharon. It's, it truly is a pleasure to be here with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So, Mark, as a risk manager with a legal malpractice insurance company, you're concerned about the tech habits of lawyers, particularly those that practice in the small firm space. So tell us why that is. Why are you so concerned over that? <laughs> well, you know, beyond when I first started with Alps, everything I did was focused on helping lawyers, you know, manage the risks that could lead to a malpractice claim or, or a disciplinary complaint. Of course, some of my efforts were geared toward helping lawyers improve their tech competency, but that really wasn't my central focus. It wasn't until the frequency of cybercrime attacks started to explode in the early 2000s that really everything changed. Now I had to do all I could do to help law firms manage this new risk, and unfortunately, this particular risk continues to evolve. Let me share just a few stats to underscore my, my current concerns. In 2022, the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center, otherwise known as IC3, received 800,944 complaints from the American public regarding cyber attacks and malicious cyber activity. Now, the good news is this was a 5% decrease from 2021. The bad news is the potential total loss has grown from $6.9 billion in 2021 to more than $10.2 billion in 2022. Given that many incidents are never reported and that the majority of these victims were small businesses, I find these numbers quite concerning. Making matters worse, at least in my mind, according to the CNBC SurveyMonkey small business survey for Q4 in 2022, only 4% of small business owners said that cybersecurity was the biggest risk facing their business while 64% said they were confident that they could quickly resolve a cyber attack. These numbers just floor me, and, and my suspicion is if this survey was limited to solo and small law firms, the number would be the same, if not a bit worse, because you know most solo and small law firms just don't believe they're a target. Well, let me guess, would this unfounded belief be one of the bad tech habits these firms <laughs> need to break? Yeah, you bet. Indeed it is, because believing you're too small to be on anyone's radar quickly becomes the excuse for deciding to take a, a do-nothing posture. 
at least when it comes to developing and enforcing policies that really could address various cyber attack vectors. You know, for, for example, if a firm were to implement a mandatory process whereby all wiring instructions need to be confirmed using previously verified contact information by way of an out-of-band communication channel, prior to authorizing a transfer every time money is to be moved, the risk of becoming the next victim drops to almost zero. Yet making a change like this too often seems to be viewed as being inconvenient and unnecessary. Mark, you used a term there, out-of-band communication, in your example, and I'm very familiar with that, and I know Sharon is as well, but can you define that a little bit for our, our audience who, who may not be aware of what that means? I need to start by sharing a real-world example of a wire fraud incident, and, and this is one of my favorite stories. A law firm relied on an online fax service to request and receive loan payoff statements via fax. The vendor would forward all incoming faxes to a designated firm email account. Unbeknownst to the firm, this designated email account had been compromised, giving whoever did it the ability to monitor all incoming faxes. Any fax that did not contain wiring instructions was immediately forwarded by the hacker to the firm's email account as a way to avoid being detected. Once a fax containing wiring instructions was spotted, however, the hacker quickly modified the payoff account information and then forwarded the altered fax to the firm. Now, since the incoming fax was expected, came from a known party, and there were no obvious signs of any fraudulent activity, the firm assumed the information contained in the altered fax was accurate which is why they ended up wiring substantial funds to the wrong account. Now, the firm regularly works with the person who sent the fax, and they know what this person's correct or accurate phone number is. All they had to do was change the communication channel and place a call to verify the accuracy of the routing number. So in short, out-of-band communication simply means change the communication channel. Here, the incoming communication was a fax. So the firm should have used a different outgoing communication channel, for example, the phone, to verify the accuracy of the incoming information. I wonder if compounding this problem, Mark, is a failure to understand that in terms of the Internet, words like rural, small town, and small business don't have the same meaning as they do in the real world. Sure, I, I really do think you're right about that. And unfortunately, believing that they do you know, have the same meaning, you know, that can lead lawyers to becoming complacent about the true level of risk they face. Now, this actually gets me to the next bad tech habit firms need to break. A belief that you're too small to be on anyone's radar because of the, the size of your firm, where it's located and the types of matters you handle, also leads to what I like to call the false sense of security problem, which is assuming that your IT support can protect your firm from just about every threat out there. I know the two of you will agree with me when I say IT simply can't for two reasons. The first is this. Every day, 
Every user of tech is a potential victim of every new and unknown or unidentified cyber threat in the wild until the fix is in. Yes, most law firms have deployed internet security software suites, intrusion detection systems, firewalls, and the like. And this really does make a huge difference. And I want to underscore firms should trust that the efforts of their in-house IT staff or outside IT consultants will keep them safe, as safe as they can. Just understand that while IT support can do quite a bit, and their toolbox of solutions continues to get ever better, they simply can't protect you from unknown or unfixed security vulnerabilities that hackers take advantage of. Making matters worse, the second reason is there is one significant vulnerability IT support will never have a patch or update for. And that vulnerability is the people who use whatever tech any given firm has in play. Too many firms still fail to fully appreciate the level of risk any infiltrating staff member truly represents. Every firm, I'm sorry, every person at a firm is part of the security equation, and none of them can be secured with a software patch or hardware upgrade. Here's the harsh reality. Any individual's actions can unintentionally circumvent any security tool IT support has deployed. All someone has to do is open an infected email, click on a malicious link, or unwittingly verify a password for a cyber criminal, and it's game over. Unfortunately, these things often happen because the individual simply didn't know any better, got caught off guard, or sometimes just doesn't care. There are times where people sit and think, it's not my responsibility, that's my employer's responsibility. You know, so, and they just don't care. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. InfoTrack, the same company that simplifies your e-filing and process serving, is right now preparing Legal Up 2024, a free and fully virtual event for legal professionals. Learn new skills from experts around the industry, meet fellow legal professionals from around the country, and tune into the latest and greatest trends and happenings from the comfort of your home or office. Join InfoTrack and One Legal on April 24th and 25th and see why 99.9% .9 of legal professionals recommend this virtual conference. Register now at infotrack.com slash legal up. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is bad tech habits your firm needs to break. 
Our guest is Mark Bassingthwaite, Esquire, who, since 1998, has been a risk manager with ALPS, the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance. In his tenure with the company, Mark has conducted over 1,200 law firm risk management assessment visits, presented over 600 continuing legal education seminars throughout the United States, and written extensively on risk management, ethics, and technology. Well, Mark, before our break that we had, you started talking about the biggest risk factor that firms face and whatever these things that are called carbon units, otherwise known as people. <laughs> and we deal with that every day as well. And, and they do, you know, they are unintentional in some of their actions and, and hopefully they're not malicious, right, in, in what they're doing to their firm, but they are an enabler you know, pretty much on a daily basis. And, and they really need to understand what's going on with cyber. But what do you think that the firms can do to, to help, let's say, lessen that, that risk? It's a great question. You know, first, firms need to accept reality and see the situation for what it is. Becoming and remaining cyber secure is an all-hands-on-deck proposition that, that really never ends. Everyone has a role to play, and it starts with ongoing mandatory social engineering awareness training for every single person who works at a firm. Everyone. I truly believe the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. The problem is, how can they if they don't know what the right thing to do is? In my mind, social engineering awareness training addresses that problem head on. It's the only way I know of that keeps everyone apprised of what the various attack vectors look like, how the attacks work, how the attacks are evolving, and what to do if they recognize a cyber attack is underway. The goal is to give everyone at a firm the ability to know how to not unwittingly help an attacker circumvent the security solutions IT have deployed. I wish we could all figure that out, but <laughs> we're, we're all trying. We're all rowing in the same direction. <laughs> Mark, you've shared that things changed for you professionally in the early 2000s as a result of the explosion in cybercrime. I'm curious, in your world, did the COVID pandemic alter the cybercrime threat landscape yet again? Absolutely, it did. Absolutely, in a very big way. The best way for me to describe it would be to share another bad tech habit firms need to break, which is allowing the unfettered use of personal mobile devices for work. Now, I've been telecommuting for 14 years. So this, you know, work from home movement that got it started as a result of the pandemic wasn't a big change, a big deal to me personally. My concern stems from the apparent lack of concern over the use of personal devices for work, however. For example, far too many seem to believe that mobile devices pose little to no risk. Now, I know you will agree with me when I say these folks are all woefully misguided. Smishing is particularly problematic because people are more inclined to trust a text message than an email and are less aware of the security risks surrounding text messages. What happens is cybercriminals obtain phone numbers that are available on the dark web after a data breach, or they use web crawlers to gather numbers from social media sites, or they may even just use a random number generator. Then they start sending out text messages trying to trick recipients 
into clicking on a link or calling a number, all done in the furtherance of identity theft to capture login credentials or, or to have the recipient unwittingly download a malicious app. Making matters worse, the number the text message appears to originate from may be a spoofed phone number, meaning it appears to be coming from a reputable source when it actually isn't. What few realize is just how effective smishing is. In fact, I recently learned here in the United States, $330 million have been stolen in mobile device attacks just in 2022. As I see it, that's not chump change. We certainly agree with you. And if you've heard me lecture on that topic of personal devices, Mark, you've, you know that I consider BYOD as bring your own disaster. But identifying the problem, is that's, that's just the easy part, though. What can the firms do to responsibly address the, some of the concerns that you've just raised? I don't want to minimize the importance of the basic, you know, such as properly securing home routers, making sure all mobile devices have a robust security app installed and are current in terms of security patches and updates, in addition to a number of other security steps one should take. Really, more and more, I'm coming to believe that social engineering awareness training that also focuses on the cyber attack vectors directed toward personal mobile devices is every bit as important due to how successful things like smishing, vishing, and phishing attacks are. The reason I say this is due to the reality that many of us take a more, shall we say, lackadaisical view in terms of worrying about cybersecurity risks when using personal devices. And the attackers know it. Couple this with the fact that these devices often are network-connected devices that also store all kinds of valuable data, such as passwords, personal and financial information, location data, documents, photos, and even client information. And the reason these devices are such an attractive target becomes really self-evident. Well, we can certainly see that your concern over how successful smishing, vishing, and fishing, <laughs> nice that they all rhyme. It's the ishing trio. <laughs> the ishing trio. Are, you know, it's certainly warranted given all that we see too. But here again, I think it would be helpful to briefly explain to our listeners what smishing, vishing, and fishing are. And would you also share a bit more on why you think firms should place a component that focuses on attack vectors directed toward personal mobile devices and any social engineering awareness training that the firms do? Let's start with phishing. You know, phishing, and focus P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, is a cyber attack vector whereby intended victims are contacted by an email disguised as a trusted contact or organization with the hope that the intended targets will react without thinking first. The ultimate goal is to try to trick individuals into giving out sensitive information like passwords or credit card numbers, or taking a potentially dangerous action like clicking on a link or downloading an infected attachment. Smishing is basically the same type of attack, except it occurs via text message. The word comes from combining the term SMS texting with the word phishing. Vishing stands for voice phishing. It is a form of criminal phone fraud whereby the scammer uses social engineering techniques during a call to try to gain access to personal or sensitive information, often for the purpose of financial gain. 
The real reason why I feel so strongly about this training component has to do with my next bad habit firms need to break, which is running with an assumption that everyone at a firm is smart enough to recognize most phishing, smishing, and vishing scams. If a firm isn't conducting mandatory ongoing social engin- engineering awareness training, they, they really aren't. For example, and now I, I'm going to speak directly to our listeners here. Suppose you receive a call from someone claiming to be from your bank. The caller is going to be quite pleasant and very professional. She'll tell you there has been some suspicious activity in your account, and she will also accurately provide a little personally identifiable information, all of which is available on the dark web. Now, here's a typical script. Hello, I'm calling from Wells Fargo, or whatever your bank happens to be. Someone has been using your debit card ending in 8774. I'll need to verify your social security number, which ends in 3006. Is this correct? And it will be. And if you say yes and and allow this to continue, you're going to hear, now, if you will provide me with your full debit card information, we can stop this unauthorized activity. Now, if you were to receive such a call, how do you think you might respond? Let's change the facts just a bit. The call will be placed to an employee at your firm, and the account of concern will be your firm's trust account. Call me skeptical, but I think more than a few would be caught off guard, absent the kind of training we've been discussing here. Before we move on to our final segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is bad tech habits your firm needs to break. Our guest today is Mark Bassing-Thwaite, Esquire, who, since 1998, has been a risk manager with ALPS, the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance. In his tenure with the company, Mark has conducted over 1,200 law firm risk management assessment visits, presented over 600 continuing legal education seminars throughout the United States, and written extensively on risk management, ethics, and technology. Well, Mark, there's there's obviously a theme going on here that the reason behind <laughs> every one of these bad habits that you've, you've explained so far in our session really has something to do with a failure to provide this this social engineering awareness training and, and focusing on that. And I, I know that's your intent, you know, you know, certainly as well, but we know you. And in terms of, of helping the, the firms become cybersecure, this training thing hasn't always been a, a primary focus of you, yours. We, we've known you for many, many years. But so we're curious as to why the, the shift in concentration there. <laughs> 
Well, and, and again, you know, it, 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 it's a great question. The reason really is best explained by my sharing another bad habit firms need to break. In short, when it comes to providing mandatory ongoing social engineering awareness training, first stop making excuses before it's game over. And I really am not trying to be melodramatic by saying this. I need to say it because in various ways, I've been involved in the aftermath of a firm that fell prey to a cyber crime to include a few firms that no longer exist. The sad part is most of these situations could have been prevented if they had just conducted some basic social engineering awareness training and developed and enforced a few policies that would have addressed a common attack vectors. In other words, this didn't need to happen. Well, you know, Mark, you're singing to the choir. <laughs> I'm well aware. <laughs> I mean, this this is what we go through every day when they tell us, you know, I can't afford it. It would be too disruptive. We're too small to be a target. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. We've enjoyed all of this talking with you. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Well, let me close with my final bad habit firms need to break. Stop assuming social engineering awareness training is expensive. Here's the problem with that line of thinking. Compared to the cost of falling prey to a scam or having your network breached, the cost of training are minimal. Trust me, folks. Some training resources are even free. For example, there's a company called Know Before, and they have a blog that's K-N-O-W-B-E in the number four, Know Before's blog, or the SANS Institute, and they're at sans.org. They have a newsletter called Ouch. These are free resources that are quite valuable. Perhaps you could ask your own IT support person to provide periodic training. I mean, if nothing else, this would be a place to start. Of course, there are a number of companies that provide security awareness training as well. I am partial to know before, and of course, I can highly recommend my two favorite digital detectives, the two of you. And, and folks, uh, I just strongly encourage you to check out our good friends, Sensei Enterprises, and uh, they're at senseient.com. So with that, I will stop my pontification, and, and how about we call it a day? <laughs> that sounds good to us. I want to thank you so much for being our guest today, Mark. It's always a pleasure. We kind of do much of the same things. It's like having our, our brother with us here today. So we really appreciate you taking the time, though. Very kind words. And, and I hope people will listen to these bad habits. They need to break because they do need to break them. And they're not safe, many of them, proceeding the way they are. I know it, it feels to them like it's a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. You want to see a lot of money? Get breached. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, John and Sharon. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you sometime again back out on the road somewhere. Stay well. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, managed technology, and managed cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.